Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting its listeners. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber today at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. David Bakavoy, welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm well, thank you, Bill. It's great to be on with you again. Good. Glad to have you uh, on the program again as well. And, and today, we've been putting together, I think this will be a fun episode for listeners, we uh, we put together some questions for you regarding the historical Jesus, and, uh, and maybe to give some background to the listeners. Over the last few months, this has been a topic uh, of special interest to me. I've always kind of been poking around on the edges of this topic, but uh, in the last couple months, I've been reading several books uh, on the historical Jesus, both uh, both on the uh, critical side, a book uh, named Zealot uh, by, I think the guy's name is Riza Asland, and uh, also read uh, a book by Bart Ehrman, and then also reading some some pro books that also look at the historical Jesus but walk away saying there's still plenty of room for faith. And so, David, today I want to throw some ideas out at you and uh, and get a feel from you f- with the, with your thoughts on the historical Jesus and how how we within the LDS faith can still lead with faith on this issue. And uh, I thought I'd start off by letting you just share a brief bio about yourself. Again, people have heard uh, you on the podcast before, but uh, maybe this time share a little bit about what you're doing uh, in particular with the upcoming uh, class on the historical Christ. Excellent. Well, I have a PhD in Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East from Brandeis University. So technically, my my focus academically as a graduate student was the Old Testament from a Latter-day Saint or Christian perspective. But uh, over the years, actually, it's really my own journey with the historical Jesus began in 1999 when a famous New Testament scholar by the name of Ed Sanders, or E.P. Sanders, came as a visiting professor to Brandeis University and taught classes for a year there. So I had the opportunity to then take classes with him while I was working on my master's degree and just fell in love with historical criticism in the New Testament and this quest for the historical Jesus. So this has been something that I've been interested in for many years now, and I teach courses in Bible and in Mormon studies at the University of Utah. Uh, last year, I had the opportunity to teach a course on the Book of Mormon as literature, which is something they hadn't had in the past. I also taught a course on sex in the Bible. I teach Biblical Hebrew, the language, and, and this year, I, I'm helping them to get the Jewish Studies program up and running. It's now available at the University of Utah as an official minor. And uh, so my thought was, let's do historical figure of Jesus in a first century Jewish context. So I'm set up to teach that course in the fall. So this is great for me too, Bill, a chance to kind of talk about some key issues and maybe organize some thoughts that will be helpful to our listeners. Wonderful. I thought I'd start us off with uh, maybe giving some background that really doesn't speak to Jesus himself but speaks to the environment that uh, that he is in. And so let me pose it this way. We, we kind of grow up, I think, within Christianity and certainly within Mormonism as well, seeing Jesus as this uh, this Messiah in a vacuum, that, that in his culture and area, he's this one person out of nowhere who's claiming to, to be something divine or to have special healing power. Uh, maybe you can help us out just by starting to to maybe explain uh, the kind of environment that Jesus is growing up in? I think uh, that's a great question then to begin with, Bill. Uh, perhaps we should even explore that title, Messiah, and what it means and, and give a little background from that perspective. Uh, the term Messiah is a Hebrew term, Mashiach, anointed one, and it is therefore, in essence, the Old Testament version of the Greek New Testament title that we are familiar with, Christ. Uh, Both of these terms refer to the anointed one, one who is anointed, meaning someone who is chosen and especially honored by God to mediate his will on earth. And so at the time of Jesus, there was a lot of interest, of course, in in this Messiah figure who would come. We have a lot of documents that that we can now read and interpret that help us understand that cultural environment that you're asking about. One of the great texts is uh, the pseudepigraphic work of First Enoch 
which identifies this cosmic figure, a son of man, which ultimately derives from Daniel chapter 7 in the Hebrew Bible or Christian Old Testament, and refers to this cosmic, angelic, perhaps, figure, son of man, as a Messiah who is to come. So these are some of the expectations that we see in documents from the world of Jesus. And some Jews at this time period viewed this Messiah that would come as some sort of future judge. Uh, that we have references to the Messiah through the Dead Sea Scroll community. We'll refer to them from here on out as the Essenes. And from that group's perspective, he would be more than just a future judge. He would be, the Messiah would be a priestly figure who would be an authoritative interpreter of Scripture. But the most common understanding in Judaism of the Messiah is a sacred ruler of the Jewish people, uh, the king of Israel. And so the origins for this sort of concept really stem from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, where we see David as a very special figure and in the special covenantal relationship with divinity in biblical texts like 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. And uh, even Saul is referred to as, as, as someone who has this sort of special relationship as king of Israel. And really, from a Hebrew Bible perspective, that's really all an anointed figure was, is this chosen, especially honored individual who can mediate between the between the divine world and the human world. And yet we do find that there are sacred promises in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament for a special type of relationship with that person. We see in for example in 2 Samuel 7 a promise that God gives to be a father uh to the son of David and that uh, he, as the king he is referred to even as the son of God. So from a Hebrew Bible perspective, that expression son of God had a very specific meaning. We see reference to that, for instance, perhaps in an enthronement psalm in Psalm chapter 2, where the king is told he's going to be a son of God. And by this, they did not necessarily mean a God per se, but definitely a a mediator with a special connection with divinity. And so as these ideas begin to emerge and develop within Judaism, we reach the time period of Jesus where there's definitely a messianic expectation of some sort of future ruler, perhaps even a, a king or a, a priest who will who interpret authoritatively the law that is to come. So, so David, as you talk about that idea of this culture that has this expectation, are there, are there others at the same time as Jesus or even before him who are coming along and claiming to be Messiah who also gain a following in a similar way that, that the Savior did? Definitely. In fact, you know, interesting enough, really the, the great commentator on Jewish, uh, messianism and is actually a former University of Utah professor by the name of Harris Linowitz, maybe familiar to some of our listeners and Harris Harris really literally wrote the book on uh, messianic claims within Judaism. But it was, we do have several figures that we can be aware of that uh, do parallel in some ways the life of Jesus historically from this time period. One of the famous individuals would be Judas of Galilee. Note that he comes from the northern part of Israel, just like Jesus. And Judas will lead a violent resistance to the census that, impo that is imposed by the Romans uh, for, for taxation purposes around 6 CE or, or 6 AD, so right before the time period of Jesus, and that revolt will be brutally crushed by the Romans. Uh, Theodos is also another very important name to be aware of. He's a Jewish rebel of the first century CE, uh, at some point between 44 and 46 CE, and he is a fascinating person who is going to live this short uh, he will participate in a short-lived revolt against Rome, but, um, you know, writers actually are, are you know, a bit confused. There's some debate as to whether or not he actually did claim to be a messiah, but uh, he's fascinating because he will actually uh, claim that he has the ability to part the Jordan River. So he will lead out a major group of followers outside the gates of Jerusalem to the Jordan River and claim that he will part them, as did Joshua, prior to the sacred entry into the Promised Land, and of course to remind us of, of Moses' entry as well. Now, when he gets there, uh, he is met then ultimately by the Romans, who do not take kindly to this, this idea of a Jewish prophet who is leading a 
group of individuals and claiming to be able to perhaps throw off the yoke of Roman bondage and establish an independent kingdom, uh, perhaps a kingdom of God or whether it's a, a, a military kingdom. You know, that's up for debate. But ultimately, it doesn't matter that Roman officials are not going to take kindly to such an act. And so they will massacre him and his followers brutally. They will take his head back in a bag and put it on display as a great warning not to follow this sort of path. Wow. So, David, let me share maybe a couple of thoughts. We, we have this assumption in Christianity as well as in, in Mormonism, is, you know, certainly too, is the idea that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John simply just sat down after the resurrection of Jesus and jotted down their stories. And in those stories, essentially this one document from each of them makes its way through history until people start putting them all together and creating a, a New Testament and I was listening to a podcast today on the historical Jesus, and it talked about some of the earliest uh, accounts of the Gospels that we have in our possession. And I think they said the earliest one was the Gospel of John from 125 AD, and they had a few fragments. I think they, they said they had one fragment from Mark that was still under investigation, whether it was authentic or not, that was from 95 AD. And I just think... In general, we have this way in which our mind kind of builds up how scriptures are put together. And then looking at the New Testament, last time you and I talked, we talked a little bit about some of the stories that are added kind of as an afterthought to the scriptures. And the one that we talked about was the woman taken in adultery, uh, where the Savior said, he who uh, without sin, let him cast the first stone. And I wondered if maybe you could just share with us briefly how how we have the scriptures that we do, how they were put together, and, and then maybe talking a little bit about how different stories in the scriptures were added afterward, how we know they were added afterward, and, and maybe a few of examples of uh, of that being the case. This is such an important question, Bill, because you're exactly right. I think the general assumption for for many Christians, and specifically for Latter-day Saints, is precisely as you framed it, that uh, these are documents that were written shortly after the time period of Jesus Christ by eyewitnesses who interacted with him, or at least, if not eyewitnesses, then those who are interacting with the eyewitness apostles, disciples that originally walked the streets of of, of Galilee and, and Jerusalem with Jesus. But that is simply not the case. So this is important because as valuable as these sources are that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for narrating the life, ministry, the passion of Jesus Christ, they are questionable as historical text. And scholars have to deal with this as we attempt to recreate and understand who was Jesus of history. Again, distinguishing Jesus from history from Jesus of the past or even Jesus of religious faith. So, for instance, uh, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know that their authors were not eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus Christ, that they are writing 35 to 65 years after Jesus's death. Uh, we can come back and discuss this concept of Q, perhaps, but just to to get our listeners ready for this, Q, which is a, an assembled documents of Jesus' sayings that we no longer have, but scholars univer- almost universally recognize existed at one point, was probably assembled in the 40s or 50s, so maybe you know, 10, 15 years after Jesus' death. Uh, Mark, which is our earliest gospel account, was written at 70 uh, Matthew and Luke, uh, maybe the 80s or 90s, and John, actually, which is the latest, was definitely written in stages. So that one's a little bit more difficult for us to date chronologically, but some, it was probably written somewhere between the 90s and maybe even the, thin, the last parts of it is as late as, you know, the 110 CE. And it's important for us to note that who, that these authors who produced these texts, uh, did not even live in Jesus's country, and they did not speak Jesus's language. Jesus, as a Jew, would have spoken in Aramaic, and yet these gospel accounts that we have in our New Testament were written in a highly sophisticated Greek. And so these people who produced the narratives did not speak Jesus's original language. They actually inherited their stories from oral traditions that were transmitted uh, throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. And we know that, of course, oral tradition is very problematic when it comes to preserving actual historical bits of information. At one time, a lot of 
conservative scholars tried to make the claim that uh, oral societies that relied upon uh, upon com- oral communication were very conservative in their preservation of the details that they passed from one person to another. But more recent anthropological studies have shown that that's just the exact opposite, right? All that one has to do is play that uh, birthday party game telephone, right, to see how even in a short time period, passing small bits of information from one person to another leads to changes. We know this was certainly taking place when it came to Jesus' Jesus traditions, not only because we have wonderful apocryphal accounts, which are clearly legendary in their their narration of Jesus' life and ministry, things that talk about him as a little boy as very mischievous, as one who would uh, shock people, even put them to death if they they disbelieved in him. and not only from these traditions that emerged as people told stories about Jesus from one person to another, but even within the Gospels themselves, we're able to line up Matthew, Mark, and Luke together because they basically follow the same storyline and have many of the same stories in common. These three accounts, therefore, are referred to by scholars as the synoptics, from a Greek term meaning similar or same. And as we line up the various stories, we'll notice some very significant changes in detail between them. So it's not just a scholarly skeptical hypothesis or theory that uh, these gospel accounts are relying upon separate oral traditions that evolved over time period. It's an actual fact that we can see as we wake our way through carefully and critically through the gospel accounts themselves. Now, that's not to say that the Gospels do not feature some historically accurate recollections of what Jesus said and did, though much of what we find has been changed or embellished uh, for theological reasons. So the questions that scholars have to face in trying to understand who Jesus was is how can we delve into this material, the sources that we have, extract the historically accurate information from ultimately later Christian embellishments? So, as we talked about last time, the woman taken in adultery, how do we know that that's a later addition? Like, what's the evidence that scholars use to to decide that? And what other examples of things that we have in the four gospel accounts are things that scholars believe were were added later? Well, you know, that one, as we discussed, is a very you know, seems to be a clear addition. Over the years, you know, scholars have been delving into this question for, you know, over a century. And so historians have come up with a set of criteria that they use to try and get back to the historical Jesus. And by looking at the material critically, we, you know, can argue and debate back and forth, but the goal is to define what did, what can we definitely say about the historical Jesus uh, that is portrayed in the gospel narratives, uh, what perhaps may be true about Jesus, what is probably not true about the historical Jesus, yet is found in these theological texts that we have that are the gospels, and and what is definitely out of context and cannot be linked with Jesus uh, in any way, shape, or form. And so there, you know, it, it runs, it, you know, all of the various narratives and traditions that we find in the gospel can be assigned to one of these different categories. But just, I think maybe the most helpful way of looking at what we're talking about in terms of major discrepancies, there's a lot that we could refer to, but I think perhaps the most helpful one is when was Jesus crucified? So, for example, the synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, discuss Jesus's final meal as a Passover meal that he enjoys with his disciples for the last time. And he takes the symbols of the Passover and turns this into the sacramental ordinance. And if we understand this as a, as a Passover meal, this means that uh, the lambs that were used for that meal would have been sacrificed and killed in the sacred temple walls and district uh, that day prior to the meal. And it's identified clearly as a Passover in those traditions. And yet when we move to John, which is the latest gospel account, John is going to tell us that uh, Jesus enjoys a, a final meal, but it's definitely not a Passover meal because John states that Jesus is crucified is the exact moment that the lambs for Passover are being slaughtered for consumption by Jewish families later that evening. So there's a major difference really then in terms of when was Jesus sacrificed? When And as scholars look at this, we have a decision to make, which one is probably more likely in terms of its accuracy. And once we realize that John has a 
very strong theological agenda. John is the gospel that wants to desperately link Jesus with the symbol of the Passover lamb. We will read about Jesus as the lamb of God uh, in the gospel of John and in no other source in that manner. Therefore, there's a theological reason for John to place Jesus' death the way that he does. And this is just one example of many that we could point to that show that there are some discrepancies when we try to line up the life of Jesus as portrayed to us in these theological sources written by the gospel writers. Excellent. I uh, I want to talk a little bit about the way in which the gospels frame the Romans and maybe speak for a moment about the uh, the Sanhedrin and Roman trial. I know looking at uh, historically at Pontius Pilate, for instance, that he is a uh, a very harsh man that that he doesn't hesitate at all to to essentially put to death anybody who is out of line and and he rules with an iron fist, it seems like. And yet the Gospels in some way almost paint him as this charitable guy who wants to save the Savior's life, if at all possible. And it's, and it's the Jews who are in, in the end, he's washing his hands clean of it. And it's the Jews that are crucifying the Savior. Uh, and he, and he essentially has said, I've, you know, I'm, I'm going to be clean of this, uh, of this act. And this is on, on you. But it doesn't seem to match up with the Pontius Pilate of history. And I guess I'm curious, uh, your thoughts on that. And then I want to throw kind of a second question that you can kind of tackle maybe at the same time. The, uh, the Sanhedrin trial and the Roman trial to have a seat before Pontius Pilate in the first place, uh, Riza Aslan says is preposterous that that just never should have happened. And, and for the Sanhedrin to all get together in the middle of the night, and to, and to have the trial that they did, he also reasons out, doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I want to get your thoughts as a, as a Latter-day Saint, looking at these same kinds of issues, what you, what you think about uh, those who are holding the trial of Jesus Christ. This is a great question, and I, it, it may take a, a minute or two for us to kind of lay it out, I think, in the way that we should. Uh, but ultimately, I think that we should jump into and, and look briefly at the earliest gospel account of of the trial before Pilate to see what you're talking about, Bill, because you're precisely correct. There definitely is a desire on the part of the gospel writers to uh, put a blame upon the Jewish people and take that blame for Jesus's crucifixion away from Rome. And the interesting thing historically, and we can document, that's why I said it's going to take a little bit of time just to lay this out and show this, because it's fascinating to see it actually in the text. We can see as the gospel accounts beginning with Mark and moving our way up to John, that they become actually increasingly anti-Jewish, to use that term. And this reflects the historical reality of Jewish-Christian relations. Uh, By the time we hit the second century, Christianity is very much a separate religious entity from Judaism. Whereas when we're talking Christianity in the first century, it is in many ways an anachronism. Paul, for instance, the New Testament author, I think throughout his life would have identified himself as a Jew. And in many ways, in fact, I guess maybe a way to set this up is to say that I had a fascinating conversation many years ago now with a person who asked me the question, why did the Jews reject Jesus, right? And I I really had to answer, the only way I could answer that is, well, they didn't. And she was really surprised at that response. And I said, remember, Jesus was Jewish. And every single one of his followers originally were Jewish. Judaism was divided up into many different sects. We know of the Essenes, the Sadducees, of course, the Pharisees. And Christianity was viewed as one more Jewish sect, both by its original participants and by those who were outsiders. But by the time we reach the second century, that split between two different religions is really becoming quite um, antagonistic and definitely well-defined. And so we see this reflected in the trial narratives, as you're suggesting. So then we see, for example, in Mark, when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, it's very, very brief in its description. It's in Mark chapter 15, and we read in verse 1, As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Then the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. 
And then you have this in, interesting tradition, which, by the way, about Barabbas, which is which critical scholars, many of them believe, was perhaps made up by Mark specifically. It just doesn't contextually fit what we know about Pilate or about practices that took place in Jerusalem at the time period. Barabbas, by the way, is an Aramaic name. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, and Abbas is son of the father. So it's as if Mark wants to show that uh, the Jewish people, when they they choose uh, Barabbas over Jesus, that they actually are making the choice of the wrong son of the father. And Barabbas is identified as some sort of, of some sort of murderer, literally as an insurrectionist. So he is literally a zealot who is fighting against Roman rule. And this perhaps suggests that from Mark's perspective, Jerusalem chose the wrong king, right? They chose to follow the way of the insurrectionist, the zealot, instead of the way of the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus. And this therefore kind of foreshadows the decision that Jerusalem, the city, will make uh, in following the insurrectionist from Galilee and rebelling against Roman authority and throwing, trying to throw it off, throw that off through violence instead of accepting Jesus as king. And so, it, so some people believe that this is actually a, a narrative that Mark is making up about Barabbas to show this idea and, the pre, and to prefigure the destruction of Jerusalem, which would have already taken place at the time that the author of Mark produces the gospel narrative. Anyway, a little bit of a side note, but it's still, you're right, you get to it, and, and really the pilot just is very quick and brief and says, what do you want me to do with this guy? And they say, crucify him. And then all he says is, well, what evil has he done in verse 14? And they shout it all the more. Notice it's just they, kind of the crowds that are not named, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowds, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. There's our first original account. And then if we go to the later gospel accounts, they build upon this and Pilate becomes more and more innocent with each retelling. So you're going to get to Matthew's account, for example, which is very anti-Jewish, and you're, you're going to have that account add in this statement by the crowds that, oh, the blood be upon us and our children and our posterity as well, which you don't see in Mark. And by the time we get to John, in, it's John is going to specifically refer to the crowd as the Jews. The Jews did this. The Jews did that. And we can see this continue, interesting enough, in an apocryphal gospel source from the second century CE that was discovered in 1886 called the Gospel of Peter. Unfortunately, this fragment, it's just a fragment. We don't have the entire thing. But, um, you know, to read this very late Christian portrayal of this, it's, it's, it's even more anti-Jewish. We, it starts off with, um, with the statement, all we have left is that the Jews, none washed his hands, neither Herod nor one of his judges, because in this gospel of Peter, it's not even Pilate who condemns Jesus, the Roman. Instead, it is Herod, this Jewish king, right? So we see this, this desire on the part of Christians to put the, put the blame on Jesus' death more and more on the Jewish people and absolve Rome in the time as well. So that they're able then to accomplish two things. Number one, they make their enemies, who are now Jewish, look bad. They're they're not only Christ killers, but by the time you reach the second century, they are God killers. And also, they're able then to turn to the Romans who they're trying to gain sympathy from and say, look, we're not so bad as Christians. Uh, you guys have been on our side from the very beginning, and you've been caught between a rock and a hard place because of these bad Jewish people. And so all of a sudden, the gospel can go among the Romans and preach to them. And, and yeah, now there's more of an open heart to receive the message. I, I want to ask you kind of an off-the-cuff question. I know that, uh, that if I'm not mistaken, Luke is also the author of Acts, and or at least that's what scholars, I think, gather. I don't know if that's an absolute or if that's, if that's an assumption that scholars make. But also that almost everything after the four gospels is actually written first, and the four Gospels are written later. Do you know, date-wise, the earliest New Testament document that we have by date? Well, it depends on what we mean by a document, okay? Um, because actually, it's interesting enough, uh, um, source critics are able to go into the New Testament books, the book of Acts, for example, and some of the writings of and, and the Pauline epistles, and identify poetic phrases that probably trace back to some of the earliest 
followers of Jesus. And so there are some that, you know, that are probably early Christian hymns, poems that were recited through oral tradition that the author of Acts, and it definitely is the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke, that uh, he includes in his particular, in his writings, and that, as I said, that Paul definitely is quoting in the Romans and other cert- certain texts that we're able to extract and look at as as early sources, because number one, they don't fit the context, and they are very poetic of these original writers. They are very poetic in their refrain, and oftentimes they will use words and phrases that are foreign to these authors themselves. And so the evidence seems to point that these are very early oral Christian traditions that these authors are taking and incorporating into their text. So these were probably, these, some of these examples were probably written shortly after, or, or not written, it's probably oral tradition, created shortly after Jesus's crucifixion. So those can be dated to, you know, you know, some time after 35, 40 or so. Um, and yet, in the New Testament itself, if we're going to talk about book, an entire book, the earliest source would be First Thessalonians, which is a text from Paul. Do we know how early that one is? So we have these early Christian documents that are embedded within some of the New Testament books. But so far as an actual book itself, the earliest one that we have is without question First Thessalonians, an epistle by Paul that's written probably around 51 or so CE. And so with Christ, we know that he uh, he died, what, 28 CE, 29 yeah, CE? Yeah, somewhere around there, you know, in the third, maybe even in the early 30s. It's very difficult to say uh, with precision. But yeah, we, we shouldn't give the impression to our listeners that that historians can't know anything about the historical Jesus because all of these uh, sources are so much later um, than Jesus's time period and are based upon oral traditions rather than eyewitness accounts. There are ways of getting back and analyzing and seeing things that most likely definitely can be extracted from the Gospels as historically correct. Right. And so when we talk about like First Thessalonians and some of the other documents that come shortly thereafter, these are documents that are around at the same time that firsthand witnesses to Christ's death and in their belief in a resurrection, of course, that they're, that they're witnesses to that. And so in some ways, it's not like these documents come after these witnesses and so people can add in what they want, but rather that these documents are, are in the midst of these witnesses, and so they certainly would have had a little bit of a check and balance to them. They would, but that, but remember that when it comes to Jesus's life and ministry, uh, Paul does not provide us with very much information. Uh, New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman is like is always uh, want to say that you can take everything about Jesus that Paul gives us and put it on the back of a three by five card. I mean, not a lot of information, but definitely, you know, some, and that's important for us to use to try and extract and understand the Jesus of history as opposed to the Jesus of the past. Perhaps piggybacking on that idea, Bill, uh, once in a while, our listeners will encounter an argument by some really vocal scholars that uh, Jesus is is nothing but a myth and that there's absolutely no evidence for him as a historical figure. And that, to be quite frank, is an absolutely absurd assertion. And it's it's no not just from a religious perspective, but from an historical perspective, we have to he he's a real human. He's a real human being. To use that term for Jesus and the evidence for that. I and mean, there's a lot of it that we could cite. But but one that scholars like to use that is quite compelling. The greatest piece of evidence for Jesus's historicity and his his actualization is, in fact, that he died. Uh, and because at the time within Judaism, we cannot find a single Jewish writer uh, or source that viewed the Messiah as a figure that would come and suffer and die. That's just that's just not something that Jews were talking about. And therefore, if uh, if early Christians were going to make up a story about this this figure that uh, that came and was a messiah or the christ he would they wouldn't have made up a tradition that he came and suffered a terrible death the death of an insurrectionist criminal crucified upon a cross no one had that expectation it's just absurd to assume that something like that would have ever have been made up by these people so that's one of the uh, points that scholars will will turn to uh, another one that they'll often use is the fact that he is from Nazareth. All of our early sources 
clearly identify him from Nazareth, which was a, a very small podunk town. The, the town Nazareth does not appear as a place name within the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Josephus, who was the famous first century Jewish historian that wrote pages and pages about Jewish history and was actually a, 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 a commander over the troops in the Galilee region, in, in none of his writings do we find any references whatsoever to Nazareth. So if you're, again, if going to make up a, a story about some person from the past who was a messiah, not only would it be absurd to make up a, fa- a story about him dying and suffering death, but you wouldn't say that he came from Nazareth. Uh, they, they, perhaps he came from Bethlehem or, or he came from Jerusalem, the city of power. But uh, this provides strong evidence that we're dealing with a historical person from the past because all of the traditions clearly point to the fact that he came from Nazareth. And as we read in the Gospel of John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer was obviously from their perspective, no. Right. And you mentioned Paul earlier. So one of the the things that I think we make an assumption about is that the Gospels work together super smoothly and that everybody who's writing is backing up each other. That essentially, you know, Paul is defending the four Gospels and the four Gospels are defending Paul. In reality, what's Paul's relationship with the other early leaders of the church. Do we know anything about about how Paul is getting along with, with those around Oh, him? yes, definitely. It's really fun to start to really, as a student of the New Testament, to recognize that Paul is at odds with perhaps even some of Jesus' original disciples. But he, but if not those people specifically, then people who were directly connected with him and influenced by his original disciples. And he's constantly at odds trying to correct ideas that some of the people who knew Jesus better, uh, who came to his Christian communities that he converted to the gospel and then would teach kind of a little bit different version of the gospel. One of the things that constantly he's fighting against is, is how much of Judaism a Christian needs to accept. And the earlier disciples seem to accept the fact that you should be Jewish. Uh, Jesus was Jewish, and we should accept the, the law, the Torah, and even Gentiles be adopted through circumcision and other ritual practices into Judaism if they're going to be true followers of Jesus. After all, he was a Jew. So Paul's definitely at odds and fighting against a lot of these other traditions, some of which seem to, from a critical perspective, be associated with some of the earliest disciples of Jesus himself. Even James the Just, who we believe through tradition is Jesus's brother, correct? Yes, yes. So I guess maybe kind of ending is we spent kind of this first half talking about some of the problems and some of the anomalies in the the conflict we find as we take a scholarly approach to the New Testament. And I want to start to shift now to talking about some of the reasons we have to still believe and have faith. And I just want to use maybe as a break in between these two, just the thought, and certainly want to get your feelings on this too, but, but we have a modern approach to history in that we expect the stories that we share in our history books today and when we have historians writing down history in our day to absolutely make it the number one priority to get the facts completely straight and and to do their very best to make sure that things are historically accurate. But and, and this is where I want to point to you. This isn't how each generation in the past approached history. And so my point would be, and, and I want you to elaborate on this, help us become more comfortable with the scripture as history, perhaps, and I know you're talking about it being primarily as a as a theological statement, but at least in some regard, in our way of approaching history, the idea that we have kind of a present view of it, and if you go into the past, getting things a hundred percent accurate isn't isn't a priority on the list, if that makes sense. It makes it makes perfect sense. It's such an important point to stress. Uh, the gospel writers were theologians, not historians. They had their individual perspectives about who Jesus was, and they do not always accord with one another. And I think, personally as a student, it's exciting to see these different ways of looking at who Jesus was and in what sense was he the Son of God. And Mark's perspective seems to link Jesus as the Son of God from the moment of his baptism. And, uh, of course, the what we have in Luke and Matthew is a, a different perspective. Matthew and, and Luke talk about 
Jesus as the literal son of God from from birth, whatever literal means from this perspective. But there are contradictions and discrepancies between them. And I think that rather than being intimidated by them, it's exciting for a religious reader to see that there are different ways of looking at these issues, to go back and see what these authors had to say theologically and then be challenged by their religious perspectives and views in terms of our own quest to understand who Jesus is and our relationship to him. And in some ways, I mean, we even have kind of an analogy within our own our own religious faith in that the we talk about the multiple accounts of the first vision and in realizing obviously four of those come directly from Joseph Smith and others are secondhand, but that each of those have facts to share, uh, feelings to share, what the perception is uh, as each of those uh, experiences are shared at that point in time. I think that's a great analogy. And uh, one of my favorite quotes to draw students to in, in this type of dialogue or conversation comes from an Israeli scholar who makes the observation that uh, that God never commanded Israel to become a nation of historians commanded them to become a nation of priests. And that's very important. History was a tool that was used, whether we're talking Hebrew Bible or New Testament, history was far too important of a tool to be left to chance. It had to be used, manipulated, and and as a tool to convey the deep religious and spiritual messages that these writers wanted to their audience to take. Right, right. So let's spend some time now talking about some reasons why for the, for the Latter-day Saint who's listening, why faith should certainly still be an option on the table. And I want to bring out, um, I want to bring out three ideas in the gospel that, uh, that would push us to at least take these stories seriously and to consider, uh, the ramifications of what these men are testifying to. And so I'll mention them, uh, all of them and then we'll just pick them apart one at a time. So the three things that I've got listed is one is the, that the, that the miracles that took place from Jesus's hands, the healings and the blessings and things that he did, those have to be taken seriously. Uh, so that's one. The other is the time that is passing seems to be a short amount of time, which would make it difficult to create, completely fabricate a myth or mythologize uh, these stories into something that has no historical basis at all. And then the third one is the apostles in the early witnesses of Christ, their willingness to to die for the the sake of this message. And so let's start with uh, with the miracles being taken seriously. What are your thoughts? Well, you're right. The the miracles are absolutely linked with Jesus and all of our sources and there's no reason to doubt that Jesus had an ability to to produce things that were out of the ordinary from the perspective of the people that were around him. Now, of course, critics will look at this and say, um, a miracle is not something that we can establish historically as, as viable. That's true. But still, at the same time, they, these traditions are so well circulating that we have to look and see what was the purpose of these miracles from Jesus's perspective and from his earlier followers. And uh, there were lots of other miracle stories that were told and that circulated in the ancient world. And many that were circulating throughout the Mediterranean uh, world at the time, which are, are even earlier than the time period that Christianity emerged. And the stories that early Christians told about Jesus and that eventually appeared in the four Gospels, they really give the, the reader a sense that they, that despite the fact that there are earlier traditions in the Greco-Roman world, and even in the Hebrew Bible itself, think of Elijah, who, for example, raises the dead or, you know, heals the sick, things that were, that prophets had to do in the past, the four Gospels are really unified in trying to convey this idea that with Jesus, these miracles are something unique and something very, very new and had something very specific to convey. Can I can I find strength as far as leading with faith in the fact that even those who are critics of Jesus during his life seem to recognize, acknowledge and and certainly not deny the miracles that he's performing. Sure, I, I think so. I mean, even his critics are going to look at it and not deny, as you suggest, and and yet they'll say that his ability to cast out demons, for instance, uh, derives from the devil himself. So, yeah, yeah, this seems to be a very well established tradition that Jesus has the power to work with the divine and accomplish extraordinary extraordinary feats. Yep, and and then the second one is the idea behind the time frame involved here. I know I know some historians in people who are 
involved in literature and understanding myths like Hercules and others, that there's a certain amount of time that's needed in order to really formulate a myth from the ground up. And as you point out, we've got early historians, Josephus, and if I'm not mistaken, is Tacitus one of them? Okay, so we've got some early historians who point to the, the existence of Jesus as a, as a real human being upon the earth. And it would seem to me, in my understanding, that while you're right, some things are embellished, there's certainly uh, some things in the scriptures that we would say probably historically are not accurate, but at some level, too, there's not really enough time to pass to make this a complete myth, that there has to be some historical grounding in, in some of these events that are taking place. Right. I think that's a fair a, a, a statement, yes, without question, and, and it's why, and you know, even... Ironically, even using the tools of scholarship, going back to this idea of the historical criteria that I mentioned that critical scholars use to work through the four Gospels and determine which, which of the sayings, which of the stories can we really link with historical Jesus. Ironically, even those tools, which are very skeptical and humanistic in their orientation, ultimately confirm the validity that we're dealing with a real person that walked this earth. Awesome. The uh, the last one is the apostles' willingness to to give up their lives for this cause, and uh, and wonder what your thoughts were. I, I realize that in our in our world we certainly have different belief systems. We could talk about the Jim Jones uh, or David Koresh situations where people are certainly willing to to die for a cause. But it seems in some ways that uh, this may be a little different in that this was a slow process where they saw the man to their left and their right get stoned or crucified upside down or, or killed in some other way. And yet these guys just kept pressing forward. It wasn't like there was this one grand moment where everybody had to, to, to drink the Kool-Aid, but rather essentially years upon years of these guys just pressing forward and, and willing to, to take the punishment for whatever's going on. Is there anything we can take away from that? Perhaps, but it's a little bit more complicated, I think, from my perspective, because we really know so very little about those figures. Uh, I mean, if we know little, uh, very little about the historical Jesus, we know our, our amount of information and source material that can actually be linked with those original disciples is far more scarce. Uh, so we definitely have these traditions about Peter crucified upside down and so forth, and they're definitely believers, but it's interesting that we don't really even know who the names were of all of the original apostles, because uh, you know the Gospels are going to identify different names, and conservative historians for quite some time would look at that and say, okay, well, they just had two or three different names. Well, no, they didn't. It's just that these are oral traditions about these figures, and nobody really knew who these people were. So there's I, I so I, I I guess I don't know how much how much or what to do with that idea, Bill. I don't mean to sound like a skeptic when it comes to this, but it's that one's a little bit more difficult for me. No, I get it. You're coming from a historical standpoint, which is the the whole point in having you on, and uh, and so in some ways we really don't know enough to be certain of these individuals, more or less to to determine exactly how they deceased. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. Okay. Gotcha. I want to touch on too. You talked earlier about the Q gospel, and uh, and I want to put maybe my two cents in on how I understand it, and then you can kind of correct me where I'm wrong, or maybe maybe back up what I'm saying to to make it make more sense. I know I'm going to totally destroy this as I talk about it, but essentially we know that Mark was written first, and I guess it plays into why we know that was written first. Uh, Matthew and Luke seem to quote Mark at length to the point where the two of them, uh, the Matthew account and the Luke account are using the same word usage that's found in Mark. So whenever whenever they're essentially using Mark's story, they're both agreeing with each other, Matthew and Luke. And and when Matthew or Luke have any kind of disagreement or depart from the Mark text, they're not doing it unitedly. So you won't find the same discrepancy in Matthew that you find in Luke when they depart from the Mark text, which would then imply that the two of them are somewhat un unaware of each other, but that they're both copying at least parts of the story directly from the Mark Gospel. And then there are times where the two of them will have an account or some specific instance in their account where the two of them are agreeing together, but it's not something from Mark. And it's those agreements then that cause us to to come to the decision that if Mark and Luke, I'm sorry, if uh, Matthew and Luke are not aware of each other, because of the way they're interacting with the Mark document, the Mark gospel, 
and yet they do agree and use the same word usage on some other instances that there must be another gospel account out there that's the that's the gospel that they call the Q source. Is that am I hitting on that the right way? You boy, it is a very complicated issue, and you've did an excellent job summarizing it, Bill, without question. Yeah, it it really it's just that you know some of the material in the gospels derives from independent streams of oral tradition, a transmission. It doesn't matter if we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, or even John. Um, John, as we've discussed already up to this point, did not rely upon the other three Gospels for its information. The other three, however, share enough in common that we again use that term synoptic, which means similar or perhaps even better, uh, seen together. And we can literally take Matthew, Mark, and Luke and put them in parallel columns, which many scholars do. I refer to the professor that I studied with at the beginning of my journey in this topic, uh, Ed Sanders. He's got a wonderful book out with his wife that he did where he goes through this in detail, talks about the different theories and, and use parallel parallel columns to, to outline and describe the various synoptic stories. And and this shows that the authors were copying each other, or, or more specifically that Matthew and Luke, as you said, Bill, copied Mark. And yet Matthew and Luke share other traditions in common that are not found in Mark. And most of these traditions that are common to those two accounts are sayings, sayings that are attributed to Jesus. So since the 19th century, more or less, scholars have assembled a considerable amount of evidence from my perspective that this is because Matthew and Luke were drawing upon an additional source from which these sayings collections came about. And so since it's mainly a, a saying source, uh, scholars use the German word quell, which means source, and refer to this document, therefore, as Q. But it is a theoretical document. It doesn't exist. It's been lost to us, although I think pretty well established and almost universally accepted that this Q source or sayings source existed at one point in history. By by percentage-wise, I mean, is there any kind of chance, or is it so minuscule that it, the likelihood is probably near impossible, is there any chance that this document or others turn themselves up? Uh, no, I'd, I'd be very surprised if that, if that was the case. So whatever source this, this Q source is, because it's written earlier and because we, we have such a difficult time of simply finding fragments anyway at this point, the chances of finding this are slim to yeah, it, it, it is. And be interesting enough, uh, of course, other non-canonical Gospels have turned up in Nagamadi and, and in other places. And so we do have sources that have been discovered in recent decades. I mentioned earlier the Gospel of Peter, discovered in the 19th century. So never say never, but... Um, Boy, that would be quite the find. So, David, I wanted to follow up. One of the other gospel accounts that people are always pointing at and talking to is the Gospel of Thomas. And so I just I just have two really quick questions, which is, what date do we know about as far as that document, that gospel account being written? And and is it and it was it seen by the early saints as trustworthy compared to the four gospels we have? Oh, I'm glad you asked this question because actually the Gospel of Thomas is a very helpful source to us because primarily is precisely what we theorized in terms of the saying source, the Q source, where you have a collection of sayings attributed to Jesus. But it's, you know, it's debated quite hotly as to when this was originally composed. Scholars have proposed a date as early as 40 AD, which is absurd, or, or see, which is absurd. No one would really suggest such a thing. But as as late as 140, so 100 years later, so it's very difficult to say, but it's clearly a Gnostic Coptic text which has later theological ideas that are that developed within Christianity after the time period that our four canonical gospels were written. So it's it, it definitely can be used critically to try to support some ideas concerning the historical figure of Jesus. But I think it's it's very safe to say with the scholarly consensus that we're talking about a very late Coptic Gnostic text that is uh, you know has a hard time being linked with any of the early theological conceptions that Jesus' disciples would have had, at least for the most part. So, excellent. And let's let's wrap up here with just two more questions, and they both are going to kind of play off of each other. But um, the first one is, would you mind just speaking for a moment about why the Christ of faith is still a viable option in the face of all the things that we've talked about tonight? Well, 
One of the great historical Jesus series that we have, it's written by New Testament scholar John P. Meyer. It's entitled A Marginal Jew, Rethinking the Historical Jesus. It's a multi-volume set, not even yet completed. And, you know, in his first volume, he kind of deals with this issue in terms of who is the real Jesus, because, you know, the idea that we're tra- that historians are trying to get to who the real Jesus was is not quite an accurate description of the process. And so in his chapter, his initial chapter of the book on page 24, I'll, I'll give a little bit of it because it's so helpful and wonderful and pertaining to what you're asking. He says, to summarize uh, this perspective, number one, the total reality of a person is in principle unknowable, despite the fact that no one would deny that such a total reality did exist. And by this, he's talking about this idea that I referred to earlier, is that there is the, there is the past and there is history, right? And history involves very specific scholarly academics tools that we use to try and understand a segment of the past, but we're never going to be able to recreate the totality of the past or the total reality of a single individual or person. It doesn't matter if we're talking about George Washington or Richard Nixon or even historical Jesus. And then, Meyer, the second point that he brings out is for many public figures of modern history, the mounds of empirical data available make possible a reasonably complete portrait of the real person, while varying interpretations of the data naturally remain. We simply, when it comes to historical Jesus, do not have those mounds of evidence. We really have the Gospels, and that's pretty much it. Uh, other than we, you mentioned Tacitus, and we talked about um, you know some of the uh, Roman writers that mention Jesus, but there aren't any pagan, meaning Greek or Roman figures, that even mention Jesus in the first century. And we don't have any, the only Jewish writer, non-Christian writer that we have is Josephus, who has two very brief statements. We have some of the apocryphal sources about his life. We have Paul, but ultimately we're dealing with the four Gospels, which have to be used because of their discrepancies and the fact that they rely upon oral tradition critically by historians trying to understand who Jesus was, what his life meant, and what did he himself believe about his mission? So we just don't have the mounds of empirical data as historians when it comes to the real Jesus. And then the third point that Meyer points out is that while the amount of source material is much less extensive, students of ancient history can sometimes reconstruct a reasonable, complete portrait of a few figures, but that would not be Jesus. And he points to, for example, Caesar, for which we have a lot of information. And, oh, and then he has a fourth point that we lack sufficient sources to reconstruct a reasonably complete portrait of the vast majority of persons in ancient history, but we can create a historical Jesus, even if we can't recreate the real Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, so as much as we try to grab at him from a historical perspective, there's just so much information that's missing or that we can't validate one way or the other. And so at the end of the day, an empty tomb is still a possibility. Sure, and sure. I mean, it's it, it definitely, and it's because uh, I am, you know, I'm a believer, but at the same time, I'm an absolute fanatic when it comes to historical criticism, whether we're talking Hebrew Bible or New Testament. And and I think there's a great value to exercising the mind as part of the religious growth, trying to understand the the tools of scholarship to best recreate history and the past as possibly as we can, and then allowing that recreation that we've come up with to help dictate our theological understanding. Beautiful. So David, the last question I want to ask you, and if we can for just a second, ask you to take off your historian hat for just a moment. And in realizing, hopefully listeners, you picked up on this, this entire episode was from that historical perspective. And so you could see me kind of hinting or talking about the idea that whether one chooses to believe or not is is up in the air based on historical analysis but but I want to I want to give you David a moment to to just tackle this just from a a member of the church uh, just a, a Latter-day Saint uh, perspective knowing all these things having having looked into all this stuff taking your historian hat off what draws you to still believe I, that's a wonderful question and I I'm I love historical critical analysis, whether we're talking Hebrew Bible or New Testament, even in as much as it applies to the specific text of the Latter-day Saint tradition. I think it's wonderful and exciting. I believe that part of our spirituality involves the growth of the mind and asking sincere, hard questions. And as we 
delve into the question of the historical Jesus, there are times when it will rock people's testimony and faith. It's kind of shocking to learn that Jesus probably wasn't born in Bethlehem at all, probably was born in Nazareth. But a lot of these issues we can look at and say, well, if that's the case, does that really mean that I cannot believe in him as my savior? Does that really mean that I can't accept that he's the son of God? Well, no, of course it doesn't. But then that becomes an, another difficult thing to try and define intellectually. What does it mean for him to have been the Savior? What does it mean for him to prov- have provided the atonement? Because the gospel writers are going to have different views on that as well. And I actually think that's very helpful to show that no one really has had this whole thing worked out intellectually. And that I find comfort in that as a believer myself to know that uh, that it's okay because Matthew didn't have a full understanding and neither J- Jesus himself. Uh, I really connect with the reconstruction that scholars like Bart Ehrman provide when they talk about Jesus as a as an apocalyptic figure. I think that really makes sense. And as you delve into that perspective, it's inevitable that we start to wonder, well, how much did Jesus really understand about who he was and what his ministry was? And I think there's a good likelihood that he, you know, he didn't understand uh, fully what he was going to do and what his mission entailed. And not only is that supported through historical analysis, but we actually find that, Bill, in the Doctrine and Covenants itself. Remember, Doctrine and Covenants section 93, uh, verses, especially like verses 8 and 9, where we read where it's a kind of a reformulation about John chapter 1, verse 1, with the Word, and he was the Word, even the messenger of salvation. And then as that revelation continues that Joseph Smith receives, we read that... um, Jesus did not receive a fullness at first, but received grace for grace, and he received not of the fullness at first, but continued through this process of learning grace to grace until he received a fullness, and thus he was called the Son of God. So it's okay to not have everything worked out, to still have questions and doubts, and it's a, it's an exciting process, I think, because it's one that um, many people have gone through, even John the Baptist, right? Because it's beautiful the way that Matthew sets up John's faith and testimony. And John enters the scene as this great apocalyptic figure telling us that the Messiah is coming and he's going to be like an axe at the root of the tree. He's going to burn you all up and he's coming. So you better repent or you're going to be destroyed. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes in on the scene and he's not that fiery apocalyptic figure in the gospel of Matthew. Instead, his immediate response is, well, to John's message is, oh, I need to be baptized with the sinners. And it's so shocking for readers, and it would have been for, from John's perspective, because all of a sudden, instead of being this cosmic figure that's going to burn everybody up and take out the sinners, Jesus links himself with the sinners in that particular narrative account. And it's so shocking to John that, remember, as it goes on in the account, and he's in prison, and he uh, literally has to send some of his own disciples and ask Jesus the question, well, are you the one we're waiting for or not? So even John has questions. So when our, you know, when we as Latter-day Saints begin to this process of studying scripture and history critically, and we run into questions and doubts, we need to realize that that's that's part of the process. John went through it. Joseph Smith went through it. Jesus himself went through it. And that's okay. That's point one, I guess, one of the points. But also then I, I do feel that there is definitely room within historical analysis for seeing Jesus as someone who is is sent to save us and to teach us and lead us into higher spirituality. If that was not the case, there wouldn't have been millions of people who have connected so deeply and profoundly with this apocalyptic prophet's ministry and mission. And that certainly is the fact. And it's true for those believers. It's true for me as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, as I kind of think about that question myself, and I and I think about all the debate back and forth about uh, about the historical Jesus and what he was and what he wasn't all I can keep going back to is the fact that he's changed my life and uh, and so in some way shape or form to me that's as real as it gets David take a moment and tell us about uh, the book you had that just came out uh, again as well Yes, I did. Thank you. I, I appreciate you that you would draw attention to that. Uh, not that I make money off of it, but it is a book that I'm hoping will be helpful to people. Uh, authoring the Old Testament, it is a, the first of a, uh, of a trilogy that will deal with historical critical analysis.
analysis of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. It covers the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, introduces Latter-day Saints to the documentary hypothesis, to source criticism, and how scholars understand the recreation of the material in that collection, and then how that applies to Latter-day Saint scriptures, how we can still make sense of the Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses, the Book of Mormon, as inspired scriptural texts, in addition to accepting perhaps these scholarly theories on the development of that of that source material. Not that I have all the answers, but uh, just certain ways of, of looking at it that I can think offer paradigms of, of help to those who encounter those sorts of ideas and, and be excited with the process of learning from that angle as well. Did I hear too that the second, the second book is on the way? Yep. Hopefully, hopefully in the next, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. We'll see. Excellent. Cool. Excellent. I'll put a link, uh, a link to your book. And actually, that's what I was talking about because I know last time we talked about uh, the first book in that series, and I was under the understanding that the second one was about ready to, to hit the shelves. But you're saying it's a little ways off yet. Yeah, it's a little ways off. It, it, I'm so busy teaching; it's hard to to keep up on it. And the first one really took so much out of me. I it was a really personal project of that I was really hoping would be helpful to to those who encounter historical criticism and are looking for ways that they could hang on and, and retain the spiritual connection to scripture. So it was a very personal uh, work that, yeah, it was, yeah, I'm still recovering from it, Bill. David, we appreciate you uh, you being on today and, and sparing some time for, for the podcast and just appreciate your insight and your perspective and, and uh, just, uh, again, grateful and, and consider you one of the good guys. Thank you so much. Very kind, Bill. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share. Taking out my issues never healed the 